0: Alright, so Proverbs chapter 5. I want you to think with me for a minute about something um, as we begin to study through this chapter. In a fallen world, the greater the gift, the greater the potential for pain and suffering and misuse and abuse. So, I don't know who actually did this, but whoever invented the paperclip, you know, kudos to him or her. Um, it's done some real good in the world. You know, paper clips. Yeah, everybody with me, it's helpful. Um, but you know, it's just a paper clip. And the suffering caused by paper clips is probably fairly benign. I mean, I imagine, you know, there's probably stories out there somebody's gotten one in the eye or whatever. But, you know, it's probably like sticking it under your fingernail, which, ah, that's really painful, but you're going to survive. You'll be okay. If, on the other hand, you invent a way for human beings to fly, that is an amazing gift to humanity, right? But plane crashes and warplanes in the wrong hands have done catastrophic damage, right? The internet, another example, incredible gift to humanity. All kinds of good things are possible. But so much evil, it's like a parasite has fed itself On the good, twisting it and doing incalculable damage. Well, sexual intimacy in marriage is a very good and powerful gift from God, the one who invented it, the one who gave it to us. It says something about His goodness. I mean, He created us with all these nerve endings. His idea to make it such a powerful pleasure and to give it to us. It's actually intended, we can't go into this too much today, but it's intended to say something about His love for us and about the, ready, consummation at the return of Christ, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be fullness of joy forever. But, in a fallen world, the greater the gift, the greater the potential for pain and suffering and misuse and abuse. So someone has said, Satan works to get you in bed before marriage and out of it afterwards. So many of us probably are painfully and perhaps shamefully aware of how true that is. And speaking of pain and shame, when we're talking about human sexuality and God's design and will, I know that this could be a painful topic for many of you, whether you're single, whether you're married, for different reasons. You know, if you're single, how is it fair to be given this gift of sexuality and these desires and not be able to act on them if that's what God's will is and design for me? Or married there are probably some of you for whom the marriage bed is a place of great shame maybe revulsion even or resentment or bitterness or frustration some have given up so there's just so many different situations here in any room of this size with this many people and there are challenges and there are opportunities for those of us who are single there are challenges and there are opportunities for those of us who are married And texts like this, which can be hard, there's there's often sweet and strong grace if we lean into them, press into them, rather than ignore or avoid them. So I can't hit on everything we do have next week as well, because there's a lot on human sexuality in Proverbs 5 to 7. So we're going to consider it again next week. Um, but I will seek to make this as broadly applicable as possible. It's a tall order. I'm not seeking your pity, but I am seeking your ear and your prayers. But even more important than me, God wants your ear this morning and your heart. So what's the big idea in chapter 5? Like what's the main thing? This is a chapter of wise counsel, so it originates as a father to a son. It certainly has broader applicability than that. But father to a son, wise counsel to steer clear of sexual temptation and stay intimately close to your spouse. So avoid the bitterness of sin, taste and see. So fitting that we read from Psalm 34 this morning, taste and see that God's design for sexuality in marriage is sweet. So the question is, will we heed? Like whose voice will we heed? Will we heed the the wise words of a loving father? Because this is ultimately our heavenly father speaking to us as children. Will we heed his voice and his wisdom or the seductive speech of the seductive man or woman? and so many of the siren songs in our culture today. So also just, we're not going to go into a bunch of background here, but Proverbs 1-7 should still be in view. Remember, that's like the motto of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we don't want to despise it. We want to humbly trust the Lord and seek his wisdom and submit to his wisdom, right? Right? So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He's God, not us. And then also, two weeks ago, we looked at Proverbs 3, and specifically 3, 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. God knows better than us. We need to trust him. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. So again, that also should be like a banner over these words. In in a sense, it's Proverbs 1, 7, Proverbs 3, 5, and 8, applied to sexuality. Here in chapter 5. Okay, so we begin with those all important two first words my son. Remember, we've said in previous weeks that the atmosphere here is covenantal adoption. God the Father is speaking to his beloved covenantal children. Like by nature, we're all wanderers, we're like runaway children. And if you're in Christ, it's because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Sexual sinners, all, that's all of us, we're sinners of all stripes, right? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but all of us are sexual sinners as well. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to bring us home, to reconcile us to the Father. And if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus then you are at home with him. You don't have to fear his judgment. Jesus bore that on the cross for us. And so your loving, wise, heavenly father, listen, like, just slow down and hear it this way. God the father, your loving, heavenly father is wanting to kind of like really get your attention and look you in the eyes with these, my son, my son. So I don't know what your earthly father was like. Maybe that's really good memories or a good thing right now. Maybe it's really bad. But here is the perfect heavenly father, perfectly wise. He is completely loving. He's totally engaged. He is present, not absent. He's involved. He's attentive. And he has so much wisdom to impart to us in all areas of life and this morning for our sexuality. He's not embarrassed. He's not like, yeah, so do you know how babies are born? And, you know, like, awkwardly, 45 seconds and, yeah, so good talk, you know? No, he's engaged. So let's go there with him. The warnings here The boundaries, those are all for our good. We need to trust him, trust in him with all of our heart, not lean on our own understanding, not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds as we listen to his words, his wisdom, and welcome them deep down into our souls. So let's go there with him. He's putting his arm around us, helping us navigate the pitfalls and apply his wisdom to our sexuality, all right? So first point, sexual sin is not what it seems versus 1 to 6. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. So discretion and knowledge can be lost, can be taken away if you don't guard and keep them. So who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to me and keep my words in here or are you going to Listen to the seductive speech of the forbidden woman. Look at verse three. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two edged sword. In the end, again, her feet go down to death. Her steps, like, she's not taking you into utopia and ecstasy, she's actually taking you to the slaughter. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she doesn't know it. So listen, sexual temptation is all about false promises. Honey that's actually poisonous. Oily smooth that bites like a blade. So we're all going to be tempted. It's going to look and sound and taste initially so good, but it's deadly. Like John Owen said, "Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Or there's an old saying that goes, honey is sweet, but the bee stings. So sexual temptation can seem sweet and smooth. Those images or that video or that steamy novel or that TV show or that movie that shows you things you should not see it's like a sugar hit to the soul. You know what I'm saying? It can make you feel alive. You know, life can kind of like beat you down, you're feeling dead, and then, like, that's a live wire. Sensuality is such a powerful tool. Like, if nobody's ever desired you sexually or if no one desires you now, Whether you're single or married, sensual images, porn can give the illusion of being wanted. Oh, she wants me. No, she doesn't. She doesn't even know who you are. But it strokes your pride. Oh, she wants me. It gives you an illusion of being in control. I can obtain this pleasure, but it ends up leaving you weak and empty. Sensuality can be a powerful tool. It can give you the illusion of of control and power. If you can turn heads, get attention, have men or women eating out of your hand. But then actually what you're doing is you are contributing to the dehumanizing dynamics of objectification. Okay, so sin, like sexual temptation, is all about false promises. Sin is deceitful. In the end, both the men and the women who are ruled and enslaved by sexual sin become weak and vulnerable. So again, that connection between verses 1 and 3. Sin, like sexual sin is going to make promises, but God's wisdom also makes promises. Who are you going to listen to? Who are we going to listen to? We need to be attentive to wisdom. It will keep us sane and tethered and grounded and keep us from being drawn away and veering off into the ditch and over the cliff. So Derek Kidner writes this. Nothing can be judged by its first stages, right? Honey, it's bitter. Smooth oil, blades, blades, Nothing can be judged by its first stages. Here the end utterly reverses the promise, the delicious ends of the disgusting, the soothing as the murderous. Or as a guy named Matthew Smethurst put it, sin always looks better through the windshield than the rearview mirror. That's pretty helpful. So whose voice are we going to listen to? What promises are we going to believe? We can't judge this one on how it appears in the beginning, in the initial stages. You've got to look at the whole. You need the wide angle lens view. So for instance, just one like practical example of God's wisdom playing out in real life, it's well documented that porn, uses, uh, porn use changes your brain. And it can make it more and more difficult to obtain the same level of pleasure from it, which is why typically it sucks you in farther and farther to darker and darker forms. And it also makes it harder and harder to quit What a satanic dynamic there, right? And porn use is a huge contributor to ED in men. Like, do you see? What seems to make you powerful actually weakens you. Impotence. So this is what happens in the real world when we reject the fear of the Lord and refuse to trust in in God with all our heart. When we are wise in our own eyes and we go against the grain of God's good creation design, we will suffer for it. So he loves us too much to not say anything. He's looking us in the eyes and saying, warning, sexual sin, point number two, is a dead end. Look at verses seven to 14. And now, sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Again, who are you gonna listen to? Who are you gonna listen to? Keep your way far from her, And do not go near the door of her house. If she's, if her steps are going down to death, do you really want to go after her? Like steer clear of her sphere of influence. So, little astrophysics 101 for us this morning. Um, Why does the moon orbit around the earth instead of around the sun? I'll just leave it at rhetorical. Nobody's feeling bold this morning. So in science, the term is sphere of influence. It refers to the area where the earth dominates the orbit of the moon. So even though the sun is like 330,000 times as massive as the earth, the moon doesn't orbit around the sun because it's too far from the sun. It's in the sphere of influence of the earth. Or to put it in sciency terms, This is is actually from um, somebody in our church who understands these things way better than I do. Every item in the universe is gravitationally attracted to every other, but the magnitude of the attraction decreases with the square of the distance between them. The farther away, the weaker the influence. So one more term from astronomy and astrophysics is event horizon. Anybody ever heard that? It's easy to raise your hand. Okay, a few people. So, The event horizon is it describes that distance from a black hole at which nothing, not even light, can escape its gravitational pull. Now, I've been told by those who understand such things that there are a whole lot of counterintuitive, relativistic things going on around black holes, so it's not easy to understand. But we're not going to go that much into this at this point this morning. So, why in the world? The lesson in astrophysics, two things. One, gravitational pull, or you could say influence, grows with proximity. Two, massive objects lose their attractive force the more distant they are. Do you see how this is like a parable for our souls? Anybody with me? When it comes to sexual temptation, keep far away is good wisdom. Don't get inside the gravitational pull of these things. Don't get close enough for her or him to act on you And this is actually true whether you're single or married. If you're married, if you drift from your spouse and then you draw near to porn or go near someone at work, ooh, compliments feel really good. There's such easy rapport. The electricity of being desired makes you feel alive again. If you toy with that, the gravitational pull of the massive covenantal commitment of marriage will weaken the further you drift and the closer you get to that other body that acts on you. So, verse 8, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Or, in the New Testament, flee sexual immorality. Don't toy. Don't try to see how close you can get and still be okay. Ah, we're just friends, I won't get sucked in. No, keep a safe distance. Think event horizon, sphere of influence. So if, listen, if there's anybody in here this morning, if some sparks have started to fly in your neighborhood, at work, wherever, in your heart, keep your distance could mean taking a different route, going to a different gym, Going at a different time of the day, avoiding a neighbor, I mean, even changing your job. It would be worth it. It's like Jesus saying, if your eye causes you sin, gouge it out and throw it, throw it from you. He's not saying literally gouge your eye out, he's saying be ruthless. Sin's not messing around. Otherwise, there'll be a terrible cost. That's where. The wisdom goes from here. Look at verse nine. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan with regret. When your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline. I hate how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to my instructor. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So, if you don't heed the voice of the Lord, mediated through wise counselors, the cost will be great. So, the point here is consider that cost. This is only one tool in the tool belt or one strategy, but it is a valuable one. Have you ever pondered? Have you ever played out the tape? like how you could literally like ruin your life. So many things you've worked to build can be destroyed in a moment. How many times do we have to see that happen for us to heed the warning? Tim Keller tells a story in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He and Kathy wrote The Meaning of Marriage together. And he tells a story from an article that he read. Um, It goes like this. This whole dynamic is illustrated by a painful account written by journalist Wendy Plump of how her marriage disintegrated after she had an affair. During an affair, she says, the great sex is a given. When you have an affair, you already know what you will have. You already know you will have passionate sex. The urgency, newness, and illicit nature of the affair practically guarantee that. The thrill of the forbidden and the ego rush of being desired was mistaken for love because superficially it made the sexual encounter crackle with electricity. But then the affair came to light, and she relates her husband had an affair as well. Finally, the marriage fell apart. During the, during the telling of the story, Plump looked at her parents. They have this marriage of 50 years behind them, and it's a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. Finally, she asks, if you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained, devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery. Her parents' marriage, the creation of time and will, was indeed more interesting than her fleeting romance, however passionate. So whether it's an actual affair with someone who's not your spouse or a virtual affair, the damage can be terrific. So folly embraces the long-term cost for short-term gain. A long-term loss for a short-term gain. It's like the opposite of Jesus's wisdom when he says, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me." For everyone who wants, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So wisdom says, "Okay, I got my eyes on Jesus. I'm following him." So there. Lots of cost and danger, and we need to guard our hearts. Like um, Eugene preached from chapter 4 so well last week. Guard your heart. From it flows all the issues of life. So if there's poison in the well, it's going to work its way down into all different aspects of life. So we need to guard our hearts. Um, One little qualification here, though, I think is in order. Let's note that not all women or men, especially in the church, are this seductress or a snake we should be like we should be able as the church of Jesus to be safe spiritual siblings for one another amen? amen so we dare not be suspicious of everyone like that would be to have too low a view of grace and the spirit of god all the while not failing to be not suspicious enough of our own hearts. like We wouldn't want to have too low a view of indwelling sin and the reality of spiritual warfare and the power of proximity. So we shouldn't be naive to the fact that stuff happens and it can happen to you and me. Like if you get any vibes, you know what I'm saying? Be on guard and vigilant, keep your distance. It will be costly otherwise. But we should be able to have beautiful, healthy, spiritual sibling relationships in the church and even show the world how we can do that. So this all is like the negative stuff, the avoid stuff, the watch out stuff, the be on guard aspect of sexual fidelity. But... Sex and sexuality in its proper context is a gift from God to be enjoyed in the covenantal context of marriage. It doesn't have to have, like, dirty connotations, okay? So third point, blessed marriage bed, verses 15 to 20. Drink water from your own cistern, which is kind of an image for quenching your sexual thirst. That same language is used in Song of Songs, chapter five, verse one drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. This ownership idea could be off-putting, like, you can treat me like a piece of property. No. It's not, this is not a selfishness card to be played. This is intended to be a beautiful, mutual ownership, like the words of the young woman in Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 3. Some of you may have it inscribed on the inside of your ring. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. Like, that's a beautiful thing. So should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. There's some discussion as to what this section means. We won't go in the weeds. Most likely, the father is saying to his son, like, promiscuity wastes the vitality that you're intended to give and receive in marriage. Like, our sexuality is not a public commodity. It's not public property. It's a private gift for your spouse alone. Then verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. And there's some echoes of Song of Songs again, chapter 4, verses 5 and 12 and 15. You can look those up on your own. Um, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So we can hear, like in the church, I think this is a real danger. Like we can hear all the, the no, 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 which the no's are God's wisdom. There's guardrails, there's boundaries, but it can be so negative at times. And even as we see all the twistedness and perversion in the culture, What can happen is the church can focus on the negative and it's it's just like nothing but negative and dirty connotations so just for instance i remember talking um, with beth before we came here we were doing college ministry in chicago lots of college students college graduates um, grad school students and a lot of them getting married and all of this and there was a girl who was in our college group and she was engaged and you know, Beth and I together were talking with her. She had actually lived in our basement for like a year. And listen, this is a very good gift from God. God gives it to a husband and a wife, and they should feel free to drink deeply of it without inhibitions. And she explained how her desire to not be conformed to the world and, you know, saying no to premarital sex or any impurity kind of cooled her to the idea of being able to Like enjoy sex in marriage. She was kind of scared of marital intimacy. So she was struggling not to throw out the beautiful baby of God's good gift with the dirty bathwater of our our culture. So it's really easy to overcorrect, right? And this passage, as well as Song of Songs, for instance, are here to help us guard against such an overcorrection. Like sex is like fire, to use another really powerful gift that can have all kinds of damage that goes along with it, right? Like you keep fire in the fire pit, keep fire in the fireplace, man, warms you wonderfully. What a gift. Outside the boundaries, it can wreak havoc, sadly, like we've seen in Maui just recently and elsewhere. But listen, sex is God's idea. It is his good gift to give. And listen, sex is ours, God's people, more than it's anybody else's, like more than it's the porn people, belongs to them, or the movie or the TV people, it is ours it doesn't belong to those who run the tabloids, or the celebrities or the beautiful people like this is God's good gift, we get it because we know the one who, who gave it who designed it, created it gave it to us, so if we as the church don't talk about it and fight for it for it's goodness, and it's beauty and it's like, oh this sweet gift from God we don't model that in the way that we talk about it, the way we live out our marriages. Like, what's going to happen? The church is supposed to be a platform for the wisdom and the glory of God. We should show the next generation the glorious biblical vision of sex and sexuality. But if we just focus on the negative, 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 don't, never, ah, our kids are going to suffer for it, actually. So God's boundaries are actually for our freedom. G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He said, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. So one thing that was really helpful for me, I didn't see this until this week, was to notice what verses 18 and 19 are. Look there for a second. You see, This wise father says, let your fountain be blessed. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. These verses are the heart of a wise father seeking to prayerfully bless a new marriage. So we have these longtime friends um, who live up in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and we've known them since college out in the Chicago area. Um, We used to take their firstborn child um, as a baby, to Denny's, you know, it's the only place to open, like, really, really late for these late-night food runs, you know, stick them in the, in the uh, car carrier or whatever, you know, you flip the thing upside down and boom. And we're there at 2, 3 in the morning eating moons over Miami or whatever it was. Um, and now he's, like, 25. So he and their second-born son both got married a few months apart last year. We went to both of the weddings, and I don't think I'll ever forget the part near the end of the service when a friend of theirs sang the blessing of number six, 24 to 26, um, over this couple. So we were seated behind mom and dad of the groom, like maybe six, seven rows, something like that. And I remember, because the musician was over here and I'm watching that and then I look here and my friend is sitting in the front row like this during that song. And it was the most beautiful thing because that father wants blessing and protection for that marriage. And so he was praying it with that song over that dear couple as they started their life together. that's what this Father is doing. That's what the Heavenly Father is doing here. The whole church should pray for this, for the marriages that are in this room, for the future marriages that are in this room. Like, may this be. Let it be, Lord. I know I have prayed along these lines, like, Well, first, every time I've ever married someone, praying for them that night, praying for them through their honeymoon, praying for them for the first year and the start and the trajectory, that God would bless their intimacy, that it would be sweet and strong and healthy. And it is such a joy to hear, to follow up with some of these couples, Beth and I, and to hear when it's healthy. And it can break our hearts or we can just kind of come alongside them when it's a struggle. And I've also prayed for years and years and years for the protection and the healthy sexual formation of our five kids. And if God gives them the gift of marriage, like you better believe, I'm gonna be sitting in the front row. I don't know, maybe I'll be doing the wedding, I don't know. But (laughs) praying prayers of blessing over their intimacy. Like, this is such a powerful gift, and it can go so sideways. Like, Lord, protect them, bless them, make it sweet. So our oldest daughter, Hannah, graduated from college in May of 22, and one of her best friends is getting married in two weeks. And we got to know this friend over the course of their time at Wheaton, and she and her fiancé actually asked Beth and I, like, I don't know, eight months ago, something like that, if we would do their premarriage counseling. And we finished up that sequence of several sessions last Sunday afternoon. And the last one is the conversation about sex. And, you know, from their admission, like they hadn't heard a lot of helpful, positive things about sex and sexuality in the home. They were pretty proactive about just really talking things through and, you know, reading and wrestling and all of this. So, you know, they're really in a good place. Um, But they've also heard, like, stuff from you know, people their age, and oh, the first year can be like the hardest. <laughs> and they're like, what, are, what should we expect? And I'm like, listen, I, I can't guarantee you, we can't guarantee you that this is gonna be awesome. Like, we've talked with lots of people who've struggled here. But like, this is a beautiful, wonder, like what, what should I tell them? What, what should we tell them at that point? Should we be like, ah, it doesn't matter. Should we say, just Wait. Or should we, in a sense, say, oh, let the Lord so bless and protect your intimacy that, like, you can show the world and your kids, I mean, not, you know, its but, like, the sweet gift that this is. Like, we know the one who Design this and he can be involved and help us communicate and learn the dance and figure out how to do this and wrestle with the challenges and like this can be such a sweet refuge so of course we're going to say oh lord please so the home and the church are the wombs of future marriages like little spiritual incubators greenhouses like oh god bless and protect the future marriages of our church family The kids are in that room and in this room. So much potential pain and trouble, but such potential for joy and refuge and safety and security and affirmation and pleasure. Blessed marriage bed. And then people who could say, oh, blessed marriage bed. Like we need to be about the redemption of sex in the church, church. This is God's gift Like, sex is a covenantal sign. It's like the Lord's table, in a sense, for marriage. It's a commitment mechanism. It's covenantal glue. One writer, Jack Dominion, writes this, Finally, in this personal exchange, intercourse is saying that the spouses want each other. Every act of sexual intercourse is a renewal of the marriage vows. It is saying that despite the passage of time, the couple need and want another one another couples are aware of these feelings and language is another expressing and language is another of expressing these meanings sexual intercourse is the visible and physical way of declaring these nuances and feelings so listen god is interested in the redemption of sex sexual satisfaction in marriage should be pursued and protected and cultivated like rarely is this going to be easy Body image issues, unequal libidos, insensitivity, selfishness, frustration, past hurts, past baggage, abuse, etc., etc., etc. But we should proactively seek the redemption of sex. And it only comes to the power of the gospel, the grace of God in Christ. Grace of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus needs to extend over the bedroom. Like, joy to the world can be sung year-round. I'm dead serious. Listen to this. No, let, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This is the reversal of the curse. No more need for the fig leaves anymore. It's not going to be easy. So we must each run the race that's set before us. Verses 21 to 23. So, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? No, be intoxicated with your wife and vice versa. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he's led astray. Why do I call this run the race that's set before you? There's no race language in these verses. The point is this last section is a call for response like, why should you do this? Whether in the flesh, like be intoxicated with the forbidden woman, whether in the flesh or virtually. God sees everything. He ponders all your, fa- your, your paths. We live all of life before the face of God. We will either spurn his wisdom and become ensnared and held fast in the cords of sin, or we'll trust in him with all of our heart and be set free to run the race. Like single or married, we've got to run the race that's set before us. We might wish for somebody else's race, but we can trust in the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our understanding and run the race that he has set before each of us with its challenges and trials and difficulties. We need to throw off the weights and the sins and entangle. Discipline here. The no's are for the sake of Freedom. So let me just close with a couple of points of application here and then we're gonna sing a song and be done. First, parents, you've gotta have these conversations with your children. If you don't, the world is happy to provide their sex education. Like yesterday, it's interesting. um, I mean how if if you're a parent, you got an email from Chelsea letting you know that this room was gonna be available. And I wanted to add some links to to that email but I literally couldn't remember, like I've read so many different articles that have been helpful, and I even remembered some names of people who wrote them, and I put in, you know, talk to your kids about sex, and then one of the person's names. Every time I tried to shift it for the sake of the search, the first seven or eight um, like hits were Planned Parenthood. Spending money on some serious SEO. You know what that is, search engine optimization? So I will put some links, Lord willing, this week, um, either Wednesday, Friday or something, some some email. But we've gotta have this conversation and it's not a one-off, you know, like gotta go away for a special weekend. I mean, hey, go away for a special weekend, but like, we've gotta have lots of little conversations and it's gotta be an environment that's safe where they can always run to you with any question and it's okay. So I remember on vacation, like back in 2014, um, we're reading Proverbs as a family, and chapter five came up on vacation in Michigan. And it's like, oh, should I skip this? Our kids were 14, 12, 10, 7, and two at the time. I think Ben was in bed, so he was two. Ended up reading it. And I ended up writing the thing up afterwards because it became like the longest, sweetest, like coolest family worship conversation of the whole time. So here's how I wrote it up at the end. So as it turns out, the the text I was tempted to skip was the longest and best family discussion of our vacation. The next time you approach Bible territory, I think I had a blog at the time. Anyway, um, the next time you approach Bible territory that might be uncomfortable to walk through with your kids, think twice before you skip it. When you learn to walk with your kids through texts like these, you just might help to keep them from walking alone, without wisdom, or with bad company when they approach serious temptation. They just might want you To walk with them through that dangerous territory. So, again, have the conversations with the kids. And if you need some help, some resources, come ask me. There's other seasoned parents here that could give good counsel and wisdom. And again, our main message is ultimately not negative, even though there's plenty of prohibitions, it's positive. This is God's gift. Second thing, there's gonna be uh, four. Sorry, it's going long. I knew I had more content than I have time, but we're almost done. Second, forgiveness and cleansing. Listen. I don't know everybody's situation. The Holy Spirit of God does. And you're not here by accident. And there is no sin too dark that Jesus can't forgive it. You are not beyond hope. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists a bunch of big sins and then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You can be washed by the grace of Jesus this morning. You were sanctified, set apart. I belong to God now. You were justified. Made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the oldest past and new has come. How did the father respond to the younger son when he had gone and squandered everything he had in riotous living with prostitutes? He was looking for him and he ran and covered him all that shame covered by the robe of the Father. That sounds like the gospel, the righteousness of Jesus covering us in our sin and shame. That's the heart of the one to whom you come. Third, so <clears throat> are any of you hiding in the darkness? I'm not the Holy Spirit, but thankfully He's present. Spirit of God is calling you out of darkness into the light. If we say, 1 John 1, 6, we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We're all sinners here. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for all our sins. And then lastly, this third one leads right into the fourth one. We all need to be able to talk about this. To be honest with ourselves, honest with some trusted brothers or sisters, and with God. Like gospel culture, we've talked about it many times. We want this church to be a place that is safe for sinners. It's the only kind of people there are on the planet. We can be real with our stuff. But a place that's not safe for sin. Because sin kills us. And we want to be killing sin so that sin is not killing us. So this is gonna be an ongoing threat and challenge, right? On the race set before us, we've gotta be able to help each other on the course so that we can make it all the way home. So Hebrews 3, 12 to 13, in your community groups today, or in your relationships through the week, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, while we still have time, so that none of us would would be hardened, sorry, I forgot about it. hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So let's run this race with our eyes fixed on Jesus together for his glory and our good. Let's pray, we're gonna sing a final song. Oh God, this is a lot. This is a full chapter with so much and we've considered so much, would you please cause the right things to stick in each mind and heart and would you help us all respond in faith trusting in you with all of our heart and not leaning on our own understanding give us the courage that we need to walk in the light, give us the help we need To run the race set before us, not alone, but with our brothers and sisters. And I pray that we would see your magnanimous, loving, forgiving, cleansing, good, good, very good heart behind it all. As you look us in the eyes and say, my son, my daughter, listen. In Jesus' name, amen.